Okay, here we go. The episode for no one. Um, some sort of defense of confident universalism. You know, we can begin with the philosophical case that I've noted um, at different times in different ways. Basically, the argument from the non-existence of any such thing as the free, fully informed, final choice to be forever separated from God. At the root of any such choice must lie an illusion. Um, and if some perish forever, um, you know, either via non-existence or else uh, by being lost uh, for some definite eternity, you know, we can somehow know in advance. Um, if, if any are, are lost forever, it is only because of illusion, and that means uh, God lost them through negligence, uh, which is not possible. Um, the Calvinist view that God never desired them to be saved in the first place makes much more sense. Um, now, um, you've got the Calvinist view and, you know, all the, uh, the problems that are associated with it. If you just take the two premises that God loves everyone, desires all to be saved, uh, premise one, and then premise two, uh, that, um, God is the greatest good. That is not that is not perspectival. That is that is true in some objective or ultimate sense. It's an inescapability to God's axiological supremacy. Um, if you take all these together, then I think you have a confident uh, hope of universal salvation. So, why do I say that? Or how can I say that without arrogating to myself the title of judge? Because sometimes, in a case with which he is not involved, the lawyer can call the outcome. For example, think of a frivolous lawsuit. Or else just think of one where the law is determinate. Um, he's, not, he's not pretending to be the judge. He doesn't have to. Um, it may be that based on the judge's own remarks, he knows the outcome of the case. And for an example of this, think of someone who laments that despite his perfect faith in Jesus Christ, he worries he's going to go to hell. No Christian would have any trouble clearing up the confusion for this person. If you do indeed have perfect faith in Jesus, um, you're not going to hell. Uh, that's what the whole book is about. Um, similarly, if it is indeed the case that God is the greatest, highest good in some objective sense, and that um, God loves all, desires all to be saved, then we can confidently um, believe that all will be saved at however uh, great um, a price. And through however difficult a journey, we can confidently expect it. Um, despite, despite not, you know, having any pretenses toward being the judge of humankind and of creation. Um, now, I suppose one could say that um, uh, it's simply um, a mystery of the faith um, that somehow there is 
the possibility of a free, final, fully informed choice to be forever separated from God. Even though rationally we can make no sense of it, it's just a mystery of the faith. First of all, the first thing to be observed about this is there needs to be motivation. This needs motivation. Um, because if you're saying it's a mystery, it's like ordinarily we presume that what appears determinate is determinate. So, if you're saying, well, it's actually something different than what it determinately appears to be, then, you know, you, you have to have some motivation for that view. What's your motivation? You can point to the scripture and say, the scripture just clearly teaches that. I'm not so sure it does. The first spot we always go to is uh, everyone's favorite, Matthew 25, 46. The sheep go on to eternal life, the goats go on to eternal punishment. And um, the question is, what does eternal punishment mean here? The word is colossus, colossin uh, aeonion, colossin aeonion. So, uh, what does that mean? Some say colossus means corrective punishment, um, based on its etymology and usage elsewhere. And some people say it can mean that, but you know, based on its usage, it means retributive punishment. Um, I don't think where the language is ambiguous, we have, to we have to take a determinate stance. Nor do I think I have to say that it is, a, it is a corrective punishment. I just think it's a punishment, and we can infer, based on what we know about God, that it is corrective. Um, it's, you know, I'm just going to take a neutral interpretation of what it is. Eternal punishment. And I'm going to infer that it's corrective. And as far as the eternality, I'm going to say that the results are eternal. Um, but the act itself is not eternal. The punishment itself is not eternal, but the results are. As an example, uh, in Hebrews 6.2, it speaks of um, eternal judgment. One understands the consequences of the judgment to be eternal, not that the judgment itself is eternally being announced. Like it takes God forever to get the words out. Um, Hebrews uh, 9.12 speaks of eternal redemption. Once again, Jesus' redemption was once for all, right? The, the redemption um, purchased for us by Jesus on the cross was once and for all, uh, meaning in a sense it was punctiliar. It, it happened and, you know, it, 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 was, it happened in the, the, the span of time that Jesus was on the cross, which maybe was several hours, if I'm not mistaken. But the consequences are eternal. The redemption is, uh, is eternal in its consequences. And likewise, I'm going to argue that the, punishment, uh, the consequences of that corrective punishment you know, um, are an eternal rectification and correction. Um, if we go to another verse, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 9, where the wicked, those who persecute the church and give them trouble, clearly the non-believers here, um, uh, are punishment are punished with um, olathron aeonion, uh, aeonios destruction, uh, eternal or everlasting destruction that can be rendered away from the presence of the Lord. You know, we again, I say, uh, we have a word and then we infer its nature from the character of God that's revealed in Scripture. So, it's destruction, but. It, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 5, it talks about, um, or Paul talks about handing over um, a sinful brother to the accuser for the destruction of the flesh, destruction, same word, olathron, uh, so that in the day of the Lord he might be saved. 
Meaning, destruction is not in and of itself incompatible with salvation. And sometimes it is an instrumental part of salvation. I would argue for a similar interpretation of, of Olathron um, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verse 9. Um, again, one says it's in, through a kind of mystery... Um, there must be some, some possibility of a free, fully informed, eternal choice to be forever separated from God. Because the, the scripture is just so clear on this point. So you have to make it um, clear why First uh, Thessalonians, or Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9, necessarily means a, a, a retributive, and non-restorative destruction. Why it necessarily means that. Because I don't see that the language necessarily means that. Um, this is not even getting into um, the verses that, that seem to use a, a sort of inescapable parallelism uh, to indicate that the all who are being saved is, is, is coextensive in scope uh, with the all who are uh, condemned through Adam's transgression. I'm not even getting into that. It is an interpretive standard that a non-universalist will try to enforce on a universalist, but which he himself will not be able to live up to. Um, suffice it to say, there are plenty of verses that suggest universal salvation all by themselves without appealing to um, the, the nature and the character of God who is love and who is the greatest good uh, in, in an objective or transcendent or ultimate sense. Um, now, there's the book of Revelation, which in and of itself seems to be um, a very serious obstacle for uh, proponents of universal salvation. Take verses like Revelation 14.11. Uh, those who were found worshipping the beast, um, uh, or those who worship the beast, uh, uh, were or are tortured, they have, or they have no rest day and night. The smoke of their torment rises up forever and ever. So, when you look at the language of that verse, um, you can interpret their having no rest day or night as being, you know, in eternity. However, it, it says those who worship the beast have no rest day and night. So, if you, if you are taking that description and, and, and porting it over to eternity, the implication appears to be that they're worshiping the beast day and night in eternity. Which makes it unclear how God has managed to purge his cosmos of sin. Um, if, if we have sinners eternally worshiping Satan in hell, that just doesn't really sound like Christianity anymore. Um, it sounds like a weird kind of dualistic religion, uh, like Zoroastrianism. Um, you have other verses. Um, you have uh, the the great white throne judgment in which those whose names are not in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire um, obviously that seems like an obstacle for universal salvation um, this date takes uh, language from 1 Corinthians 20 and onward talking about how um, as in Adam all die so in Christ all will be made alive but uh, in the following order first Christ then the first fruits of the saints, and then uh, the end will come when death itself is destroyed and all is put in subjection to Christ, who himself subjects himself to the Father. Uh, paraphrasing. 
and um, says that on this timeline, death should be the last enemy to be defeated. But on the universalist timeline, death is defeated, and then sin is gradually defeated over untold eons or something like that. Um, just as I think that there are strong reasons for supposing that life and agape are the same, God in his simplicity is that he is, he is his life, and he is love. Um, so, uh, let me see, hold on. Okay, um, uh, going back to the, the tirade. Um, God, God has life in himself, God the Father, uh, uh, you know, from the standpoint of monarchical Trinitarianism, God has life in himself. Uh, it, it says in Exodus 3.14, Eyeh, sure, eyeh, I am that I am. Uh, God, and then First John 4.16, Otheos agape estim, Otheos agape estim. God is love. Therefore, it seems to me that the life itself um, is love. God is his life, um, which is love. Um, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We have the life of the Father through the Son. Um, and if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Your freedom consists in uh, discovering your true identity, discovering your true connectedness and the love that you bear for God and neighbor, um, which, which includes absolutely everyone. So on similar grounds, I'm going to argue that, you know, just as it says that God did not create death. Um, death came into the world through sin, deviation from God's intentions. And ultimately, through a similar kind of simplicity, I'm going to suggest that death and sin are the same thing, just as life and love, life and agape, the selfless love of God, um, are the same thing. So, that's just a kind of higher spiritual interpretation, uh, I suppose, I will admit. But it seems to me that if death is destroyed, that entails that sin is destroyed. Uh, because death came, comes into the world through sin. Uh, their destruction is simultaneous because they are, for all intents and purposes, the same thing after all. The absence of love. Unlove. So, I think that goes some way toward answering the timeline objection leveled by Chris Date. However, um, there's also the, the kind of Father Farley, Chris Date um, objection where uh, the timeline is still wrong because God is not all in all immediately after the second judgment. It takes untold eons for him to eventually become all in all. My objection to this objection is that it conceives eternity as, as just some really long segment or indefinitely long segment of essentially linear time such that we can distinguish between its begin we can just we can just clearly and simply distinguish between its beginning and its end or even just be its beginning and later on from there i don't think eternity is like that i think that eternity um, will certainly problematize uh, uh, distinctions such as beginning and end um, but from a from a causal standpoint from the standpoint of um, the eternal purposes of God, once God throws them into the refiner's fire, um, the, the, the consequent is, is, is already contained in the antecedent. Um, his refiner's fire will surely 
achieve his purposes because sin itself cannot last forever. Now, is it a linear time, you know, such that it, it takes more time for it to eventually happen? Again, I'm going to suggest no, it's going to be perspectival. There will be a sense in which A precedes B, there will be another sense in which B precedes A, and there will be a, yet another in which B and A are simultaneous. But I think the, the sense in which God is all in all immediately after the second judgment is the, is, is the sense that, that uh, sin and death are surely simultaneously defeated um, because sin and death are no substitute for God. They will break. There is no eternal life apart from Him. And His creatures will surely realize that, although they will have to realize it um, in a much more painful way um, than uh, they than would have been the case had they turned to God uh, through metanoia while they had the chance, while they were still living. Um, there is surely something in the nature of uh, death which forecloses postmortem repentance. And what I mean by that is death is a loss of agency. And once you've already been apprehended, it means little to say that you repent and have changed your ways. And indeed, many will offer even what they consider to be sincere repentance in hell, which God will ignore, not because he hates them or has ceased to love them, but because he knows that they don't really mean it, even if they themselves think they do. He must, in his mercy, continue the punishment slash death, continue to allow the death, which is the intrinsic consequence of their sin, um, to unfold uh, in order that they may eventually be purged of that evil. There is a time limit on your sin um, uh, coinciding either with your death, uh, in which case you will be in the hands of a loving God, um, or you know who in his love must allow um, the, the punishment death to continue until it achieves its purpose, um, or you will still be alive but the, the eschaton will come in, in temporal terms. Um, either way, time's going to run out. So repent while you have the chance. Repent while it still means something. Because once you're apprehended by the police, you can't turn yourself in. But the important thing to note here is that God himself will not continue the punishment indefinitely as though retribution were an end in itself, in the same way that life is an end in itself. He will surely not. Um, nor will the gates of hell be locked from the inside um, as though in sin, away from God, um, sinners could find sufficient life to sustain them indefinitely. For there is no eternal life apart from God. Nor will God destroy them or allow them to destroy themselves for a decision um, which at its root um, uh, uh, lay an illusion. Any more than we allow uh, a, a suicidal person or a delusional person to jump off the roof of a building simply because to prevent them would infringe on their free will. We recognize that certain things matter more than mere freedom, namely the ability to choose in one's own interest. So, the, you know, either, either all will bend the, the, the knee the easy way or it will go the hard way. Um, either way, God is going to win because God is right. Sin is not wrong simply because um, God punishes you for it, but otherwise it would be great fun. Sin is wrong because it's intrinsically harmful, and God is trying to save you from yourself when you sin. 
and save you from sin itself, not merely from the punishment for sin, which ultimately is restorative. How could it be otherwise? God is the loving Father. He does nothing as a judge which he would not do as a father. Behind a father's punishment lies the same love as, as, as stands behind his reward. It's the same love. God is one. God is simple. His mercy is altogether just and his justice altogether merciful. There is no internal opposition between them. So you might say, well, the book of Revelation clearly was intended by John to uh, envision some final separation between sinners and saved. And I'm going to say that John's intentions only extend so far. This is a symbolic vision, and he intends to say something about what happens within this symbolic vision. But as regards the interpretation, you know, he says that the final judgment is the second death. But what is the second death? I think that there's room for argument that it is the refiner's fire. Um, in, insanely painful, more terrible than anything you can possibly con- conceive, by definition, the worst thing that can ever happen to you, therefore something to be avoided at, at, all, at all costs, but nonetheless, not something which will lead to your perishing, as though either God were not the greatest good, or he did not desire that all be saved, and did not love all his human image bearers. So I'm going to say that it doesn't really matter um, what, what uh, John's intentions are in the book of Revelation, or I mean it does, but they only extend so far. It's, 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 it's a symbolic vision. Um, and so we can say, I can stand right there with him and say, yep, uh, at the second death they, they, go, into the, uh, they go into the lake of fire, um, but the second death is a refiner's fire. There's going to be theological disagreement as far as the interpretation. Is the second death annihilation? Is the second death um, eternal conscious torment? Is the second death um, a, a restorative um, but um, immensely painful um, uh, uh, condition of punishment slash death? I'm obviously going to go with the, the, the last, especially uh, in no small measure because it allows me to hold together the language of annihilation, namely of the sinful old self, and of, and of eternal conscious torment, um, where eternity is understood not in quantitative terms, but in qualitative ones. It's outside of time, and it's an experience of, you know, now, now, now. In, in that sense, it, 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 does not, it does not end. But it is not equally ultimate as God's love. God's love is yet more ultimate than any um, eternal uh, hell. And crucially, again, the idea that there is no division in God, um, we must affirm ultimately that the lake of fire is the same love of God. The judgment and the wrath of God are the same love of God, just as the punishments and the wrath of a parent are the, are the same love um, that, that, that corrects and reproves because it loves. So in conclusion, um, I'm going to again restate my case. We're based on what we know about God, that he loves all, um, and that he is the greatest good in some objective or transcendent or ultimate sense. Um, it's prima facie extremely implausible that, um, there could, that there would be eternal separation from God. Um, it's prima facie extremely implausible that one can make a free, fully informed, 
um, yet final choice to be forever separated from God. Now, you can, you can argue that nonetheless, in a kind of mystery of the faith, this is still true, it's still possible to do this, but you're going to have to have some motivation for that claim. You're going to have to show it from the scripture. I have provided my scriptural defense to answer those objections. And I think um, that my defense um, is valid. And I think, therefore, that my initial conclusions, meaning that we can confidently hope that all will be saved, um, should be uh, seen to follow. Um, I think that um, universal salvation um, is proven. Um, although, obviously, I can understand why some would disagree. <laughs>